Hi, this is Michael O'Connell, the host and founding producer of It's All Journalism. I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that this is our 600th episode and thank each of our listeners for helping us achieve that milestone. We couldn't have done it without you. Also, I wanted to invite you to stick around until the end of today's interview for a special announcement about how we're celebrating our 600th episode. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with legal affairs reporter Megan Cuniff. And it just kind of underscores how mainstream news organizations are just becoming irrelevant. I mean, people just don't feel like they can get what they want from us. And a lot of the times we just don't give it to them. When it comes to high profile criminal cases, especially those involving celebrities, news consumers want the latest details as quickly as they can get it. Today, I talked to a reporter who leverages YouTube and social media to build an audience for her comprehensive crime and courts reporting. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Megan Cuniff is a legal affairs reporter based in Southern California. She has a long history of covering breaking news, conducting investigations, and writing long-form narratives. In 2022, she covered at least 13 high-profile trials, including those involving rapper Tory Lanez, Megan Thee Stallion, Harvey Weinstein, and Danny Masterson. You can find Megan's work on her own website, Legal Affairs and Trials with Megan Kniff, where she is a full-time owner and operator. Megan, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, this is great. You're doing some uh, really innovative things, I think. Well, maybe it's not innovative. You're just being smart about doing what you need to do with your own personal brand, as it were, and building your audience. So what got you interested in journalism in the first place? You know, I'd always been interested in journalism growing up. I read newspapers in the morning. I grew up in Corvallis, Oregon. So we read the Corvallis Gazette Times and the Oregonian. We also watched 60 Minutes. My dad called it smart TV. When we were sitting around the table for dinner and dad said, somebody change it to smart TV, the kids knew one of us needed to get up and change it to Channel 7 because that was PBS. So we were always watching the news. My dad was a lawyer, so he was interested in politics and current events. So it seemed like a natural pathway. And I, I worked at the high school newspaper and it was kind of on from there. So if your your father was a lawyer, I mean, was there any sense that that might be something you would want to pursue instead? Yeah, I was always interested in the law and politics and court and that kind of thing. But I was always drawn to journalism and journalism was the most immediately available to me working at the college paper. I didn't feel like I had the advantage of you know, support for graduate school or law school or things like that. I was, when I graduated from the University of Oregon, you know, I wanted to go out and get a job and, and start making money. And the idea of, you know, going to graduate school or something like that just didn't seem like it was in the cards. And we were having so much fun at the college paper that it led to internships at newspapers in Oregon and then at the Spokesman Review up in Spokane, Washington. Did you start your, you know, courts and crime reporting up there or did you sort of gradually get into it or what? How'd that work? Yes, it was up at the Spokesman Review. I was covering schools in North Idaho originally. And I also began as an intern for their longtime reporter who covered the Idaho legislature when the big issues were property taxes, I remember. And it was the kind of thing where we were at the state house in the bullpen, the basement of the state house, and we would go to committee hearings and, you know, the state of the state and all that. We got to see the whole legislative process play out over the course of, I think, it was four months. At the time, it was the longest, one of the longest legislative sessions in Idaho state history. So 
that kind of built the foundation for my reporting career to go up to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho and work out of the Idaho Spokesman Review Office there covering schools. But I eventually moved over to Spokane to the main office for the newspaper to be the night side cops reporter. It was a general assignment in breaking news, but it was a lot of cops oriented stuff. And that led to me going over to the courthouse for various things. And pretty soon I moved to a day side cops shift. And that became very court oriented because I kind of realized that the courthouse was where you could go to find out about these cases that had the people who'd been arrested and get the affidavits and the records. So that kind of started my court reporting career in Spokane. Okay. Usually when people say the cops beat, you know, that's like going out and into a crime scene or something like that. But you seem to say that you sort of gravitated to like going to the courthouse and sort of digging through the records and, you know, reporting it that way. Well, it's both because you're, of course, going to the crime scene. But then once you go to the crime scene and you figure out who the people are and get the names of you know possible suspects, who they're looking for, that kind of thing, the courthouse is kind of the obvious place where you would go to find previous records for them, previous addresses, that kind of thing. And then when the person is arrested and they're in court the next day, that's where you go to get the affidavit. And the way Spokane County works, that's also where search warrants are, which are readily available. That was the best way to really pay attention to what the cops are doing. I mean, forget about the news releases. Obviously, you need to be paying attention to those, but those are the news releases from the PIO's office. You should be paying attention to what's actually going on and what the cops are actually doing and like who's actually getting their doors kicked in by the cops. And that's when you go to the courthouse and look through the search warrants. It's, of course, not like that in every jurisdiction. I learned pretty quickly when I moved to California that you can't just go to the courthouse in Orange County and just get a big stack of the search warrants for the week. But there are processes in in place. And that really is where I learned the importance of court records and everything you can find at the courthouse if you dig a little bit. Yeah. And especially if you're writing a longer, more narrative pieces, there's just a lot of detail that you're going to be able to find in the the search warrants. And also it gives you the perspective of what what exactly you know, if it's part of an investigation, what is it the police are trying to find and, and how are they trying to tie that to whatever their particular theory is. So when did you start making like social media one of your tools to send out your the work that you're doing to sort of build a following? I was fortunate at the Spokesman Review in that they were very focused on social media. And I mean, of course, there was always a lot of criticism within the newsroom about whether it was the right thing to be doing and whether we should be throwing attention at this or that. But when Twitter first started, in you know 2007 2008 it was actually 2008 when there was a really high profile death penalty case involving a murders that had happened in Coeur d'Alene but the serial killer was actually being tried down in Boise it was a federal death penalty case cuz he kidnapped the kids and taken them across state lines to Montana so it was a major case that the spokesman review had been covering since its inception and the defendant pleaded guilty but he he couldn't plead guilty to the death penalty and there was going to be a jury trial. So Betsy Russell, the reporter that I worked with, who is the Idaho legislative reporter, she is the Boise bureau chief for the spokesman review. So when this trial was happening in 2008, she was the reporter who was designated in the courtroom writing the daily stories for the spokesman review to be printed in the paper the next day. And then they actually had me go down there and just report on Twitter. And this was the very, very early days of Twitter. And it was before it was 140 characters too. It was less than that. And we didn't really have the threads. I mean, it was the very beginning of of Twitter, but they wanted me to share, you know, up to date 
tidbits from what was going on in the courtroom. And the court actually had it set up so that there was an overflow room where people could use electronics and listen to audio from the courtroom, which is pretty innovative for a federal court system, especially, you know, 15 years ago. But that was my first real experience covering Twitter. The editors of the Spokesman Review were very enthusiastic about trying out new social media endeavors. And we also had, I mean, this was kind of around the time of blogs when everybody was trying to do blogs. And I started a blog called Sirens and Gabbles at the Spokesman Review. And it's a lot like what legal affairs and trials with Megan Cuniff is now. It's just kind of all the cops news in Spokane. Somebody once described it, a reader described it to me as who got arrested last night. And they said that they really liked going to my blog and just reading about who got arrested last night. But I would have it be Spokane County Superior Court cases and major arrests. And it was just kind of a repository for all the coverage and all the extra information that, you know, there wasn't enough inches for in the newspaper. Have you sort of continued that or is it just like every new place you went, you started something new, a new platform, a new site? No, because I haven't had that much freedom, really. I mean, when you when you work at an organization, I mean, you're kind of pigeonholed into what, you know, your editors are doing, what the top management has approved and, you know, what your position is. So growing up in Oregon, working in the Northwest, I mean, I'd never even been to Southern California before I was 25. I mean, I didn't even visit New York City until I was like 31 or so. So the idea of just working at the Spokesman Review or working at the Idaho Statesman for my entire career, you know, I wanted to get out and see something. And I've always been ambitious and aware that if you're not from an elite journalism school or, you know, have connections on the East Coast to East Coast newspapers, sometimes you can feel like you get a little overlooked in the the national Twitter sphere and that kind of thing. But I wanted to get to a more active market in a more active area. And just the idea of moving to California sounded fun. And it was also when the new owners had bought the Orange County Register back in 2012, 2013, Aaron Kushner and Eric Spitz, and they were doing some big expansion of the register and they were hiring tons of people. And it was this big innovative journalism project that of course failed and a bunch of people lost their jobs. And it turned out to be like kind of a scam involving the retirement fund. There's a lot of different strings to unravel there. But the point is, it was a good opportunity to move to California. And I was able to get hired at the register and to actually cover the city of San Juan Capistrano, which it was a very small town. It has a real Parks and Rec vibe to it. Well, I guess small town is relative. (laughs) It's small town by Southern California comparison and just kind of the town politics that go around there. But, you know, the register is a very hyper local newspaper. So that was my way to get down to California. And it's kind of a rite of passage for reporters in California to say that they've, you know, covered a small city hall like that and had to be at a city council meeting until like, you know, two in the morning or something. It was actually 2.55 for me with San Juan. But that was the way for me to get down to California. But I definitely didn't feel like I had much, much wiggle room beyond what my job structure was at the register. But I only did that for maybe a year, 18 months, and then went on to cover county government for the register, which was in the main office and a countywide beat, obviously covering the board of supervisors and different issues stories. And then I got caught up in layoffs and transitioned to the Daily Journal. And the Daily Journal is even less innovative than 
the register. I mean, the Daily Journal was founded a long time ago, but in the 70s, Charles Munger actually took it over and he'd been chairman of the board for a long time, but it was not at all social media oriented. I mean, David Houston, the editor of the Daily Journal, has an impassioned argument about why social media is killing journalism and that traditional news outlets and subscription-only news outlets like the Daily Journal have no need for social media. And I can kind of understand where he's coming from because his argument at the time was, you work for the Daily Journal, not Twitter. Our readers subscribe to the Daily Journal. They pay for the Daily Journal. Everything that you do in a courtroom is written for the Daily Journal. You're not writing for Jack Dorsey. This was when Dorsey owned Twitter. So he did not allow us to post anything on Twitter at all. So my uh, social media presence was pretty lacking when I worked at the Daily Journal. And it really wasn't until I went to law.com that I was allowed to kind of branch out and have more of a social media presence. So once you left the place that wasn't going to let you uh, post anything on social media, what came next? And how did social media sort of expand what you were doing? So I went to law.com. I'd done some freelance things for a while, but I, I got a job with ALM and law.com, which is a trade publication writing for lawyers, but they have more of an online presence. So I was allowed to tweet from court then. And I actually started live tweeting Michael Avenatti's trial in California, the fraudulent lawyer who sued President Trump on behalf of Stormy Daniels and TV, all the East Coast like news networks just embarrassed themselves, like puffing him up when he was an obvious con artist. And he had all these financial problems dating back like years. But CNN and all those people just put him on TV and tried to act like he'd be a presidential candidate. It was pretty insane. His trial in California wasn't getting a lot of coverage. So that was kind of my breakthrough on Twitter was live tweeting that and getting a lot of followers through that. So I was a lot, I was kind of building up my presence through that, but it was still, you know, writing for your editors and writing for law.com. So I, I wanted to get more mainstream. So I went to law and crime news, which, you know, law and crime network live streams, all the trials. And they had a website that they still do have a website where they cover a lot of crime news and Adam Klasfeld, who's actually with the messenger now, but he was with law and crime for a long time. And he covered the Southern district of New York for courthouse news. So I got to meet him when I was in Manhattan covering Evanati's stormy Daniels trial and just got to talking with him about different opportunities. And we kind of have the same vision for how courts can be covered and the use of social media. So he brought me on to law and crime. And that's when I was kind of able to break out of the trade publication oriented coverage and start covering more mainstream trials like Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson. And then of course that led to Tory Lanez. So you move into this space where you're now you're covering these big profile cases. Is that the celebrity aspect of it has really changed what you do? No. And the biggest change is going from covering federal court trials involving insider trading charges, wire fraud charges, major law firms that are doing the defense to covering sexual assault case in L.A. Superior Court. I mean, these trials are not the federal trials that you're used to. They're not the big complex cases that the Daily Journal would cover. I mean, the Daily Journal would not cover the Harvey Weinstein case because it's just legally, it's not that interesting of a case. It's the celebrityism that makes it interesting. So the biggest change for me was frankly, just kind of realizing that these are pretty simple trials. 
like legally, there's not that much to cover here. I mean, the prosecutors, when they're doing their direct exams of the victims, I mean, the questions are just kind of like, you know, what happened and where were his hands? I mean, they have to get in. It's a little more challenging, especially when you have such a sensitive topic and an emotional victim. But you can just look at the questioning and realize it's a lot more simple legally than the other federal trials I've been used to covering. So that was kind of the big change for me was just kind of kind of readjusting the coverage to not focus so much on all these legal intricacies going on and just kind of focus on, you know, here's the testimony. I was just listening to the the video you recorded after Danny Masterson's sentencing, there were a couple of things I really liked about it. One was that you were sharing, this is a reporter's observation of what was going on. And then also you addressed the, the Scientology aspect of it, but more so the reactions of the family members. Yeah. Uh, to Danny Masterson's family members and his friends. And there's a Billy Baldwin, there's a Baldwin there. So with the exception of oh, recognizing that if somebody is just a, a celebrity or is related to a celebrity, suddenly it's just like these are people that have their lives sort of drastically changed and it's going to have impact on their family members. And so, you know, that's something I really appreciated seeing you doing, making it not so much glitzy celebrity stuff, but more about, you know, yeah, they're celebrities, but this is kind of the thing they're they're involved in. Yeah. And that was the big thing for me is just like realizing that, I mean, these are, they're regular people when they get into the courthouse. And that's what is so leveling to me about covering celebrities in court is that I feel like it's the most authentic way to see a celebrity because they're so raw with the system. I mean, they have to be there too, and they can't control the environment like they can in other stations. Yeah. It's a little more bare, I guess. So, I mean, for about a year, you, you've been a freelancer. You've been covering these cases on your own. You've got your website and your YouTube channel. How did that sort of all come together? And how are you trying to utilizing that, you know, day to day? You know, it was me really realizing what was going on with the Tory Lanez coverage and how much attention I was getting and how in the end I felt like I was the only person who would actually have my best interest in mind about how to capitalize on all that and how to actually position myself to survive the media landscape and to be able to make money off the work that I do. And a big part of it was seeing all the kind of new YouTubers and the new media and realizing that these people are making more money off my work than I am. All the YouTube videos that are being put out that are just like screenshots of my tweets and and law and crime news. You know, I feel like if law and crime news is such a new operation, if there was ever to be a unionized effort for the staff at law and crime news, which there's not, it's so small, I would advocate that the reporters who are out doing the work like I was doing in the Tory Lanez trial need to get some kind of profit percentage of these videos that Law and Crime is putting on the YouTube channel that are interviews with me, all my footage and stuff. And the views on these videos, when you just look, they're making a lot of money off that, like long term. And yeah, I get a salary. And that's kind of the idea of working for a news organization is you're working for a greater good. And the profits of the news organization are for the news organization. They're not for the one person who worked on the story. But you just start to see what a disadvantage you're at working for these traditional outlets when there are other people sitting next to you in the courtroom who have their own YouTube channels and are making a lot of money off it. But I want to make sure that it's not just the money thing. I mean, we'd be crazy to not be worried about that because we all need to survive and, and pay our bills. But one thing I noticed was just how pigeonholed I was working for an organization. All this attention that was going on in the Tory Lanez trial, 
I mean, it was overwhelming how many people just wanted to know every single thing about it. We could have written stories about it every day for weeks, but the overall website didn't really seem to care about the case. And they wanted me to write a bunch of other stories. And I just kind of felt like it was too much. And that if I really wanted to do the in-depth coverage on the Lanes case that I felt everybody was so hungry for, that I just needed to kind of go out and do it on my own. You could see this more like a musician or an artist's point of view that you are your brand. You are, you know, you're the product. You should be able to be the one who's going to benefit off of it. Yeah. And just because of the system of media where it's this, yeah, you go work for somebody and you know, they'll pay for this and that and they'll get you access to some sort of things. But at the end of the day, you're just a hired hand handing stuff over to them. When you get to the point where you can sort of make yourself a quantity, then you can say, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm Megan Kniff, you know, legal cases reporter. You know, this is my website. You want my content? You know, yeah. This is where you're going to find it. You need to pay me for that. One thing that really drove me toward it, I mean, it was just the the money and the idea that all these people are making money off my work, but then also responding to the people and actually giving the people what they want. A really good example is after the trial ended, I mean, I was exhausted. And the way that law and crime works, they've got all these stories they want me to cover. The case is over. Let's move on. But the big thing was uh, L.A. Superior Court allows people to copy and review the evidence that was in a trial. Like you do a, a records request, you can go into the exhibit room and get all the exhibits. Like if there's audio files or video files, you can copy all that over. So what the YouTubers did who don't have to, who don't have some salary job with a new news organization, they realized that is freaking huge. And so they went immediately, they did the records request and the, the woman who did it, Neek, Neek at Night is her YouTube page. She got all of that stuff, all of the exhibits and did a YouTube live where she put it all online and I mean, I have no idea how much she made off it, but if you just look at the views off it, that had to have been huge for her and all the super chats and super thanks that people can give her on YouTube. And, you know, it's not just the the money that she made off it. It was the fact that she was responding to what people wanted. I mean, the idea that a news organization would just be like, oh, the trial's over. How are we going to be able to fit all that stuff on our website. We don't care. Just forget about it. It's like, are you kidding me? That's all the, that's all the evidence in the Tory Lanez trial. It was absolutely huge. I mean, they shut down the internet when Neek had all that stuff and went live and it just kind of underscores how mainstream news organizations are just becoming irrelevant. I mean, people just don't, they don't feel like they can get what they want from us. And and a lot of the times we just don't give it to them because, you know, we're all so caught up with our editors and, you know, nobody wants to work and that kind of thing. We're all overworked. We're underpaid. It's just the the typical organization issues that come with really any workplace. Right. But let's say you're in the same position as this other person who posted all that evidence. How far do you take that? I mean, you know, assuming maybe there's another hearing that the case is appealed. I mean, is that something you, a story like that, is it something you could ride for a while or is it that you sort of ride it out to the point and then you look for another type of case that's going to, you know, grab people's attention? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is figuring out how to put that stuff on the internet and how to present it to people in a way that's digestible. But I think with the evidence, you would 
have a YouTube channel for your news organization where you're putting all the videos, but then you also have a main like mother page on your website where you're like, here's all the evidence that was presented in the Tory Lanez page. And it's just like a repository for it. And you can have it promoted on the site. And then, you know, three weeks later when he's in court for something related to a motion for new trial, you have that penned right there. And it's just like universal. Yeah. The resource. Yeah. And, and people have to go to you to get that. It's interesting because you sort of what you're alluding to is, you know, that the news site, newspaper, whatever, they have to think about what, what they're going to be doing next week. They feel they need to move on because their, their audience isn't going to stick around. They're not going to be so fascinated with it. But we know, we know by just paying attention to what's going on online that, you know, sometimes there are sites that just perpetually continue to grow or change just because people are interested in it and, and stuff gets reshared every time there's a new aspect of it. Like you said, if there's an appeal. So I know you, you said a couple of times not to talk about money, not to make it about money, but, but truthfully you have to, to have that sort of freedom to cover the courts the way that you may like to, you, you have to set up something that's going to provide you revenue to pay for that. Otherwise you end up going to work for somebody and then you, you give away some of your control. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting because I feel like the YouTubers, some of the YouTubers, you know, long to be mainstream and they want the kind of credibility and recognition that comes with being a mainstream journalist, but they really don't have any kind of training or background to get there. But what some of them I don't think realize is that I wonder if they know that they make more money than us. And it depends on who you're talking to. We shouldn't act like people are just making tons of money off YouTube everywhere. I mean, there are a lot of wannabes on there. But when you see some of the people, some of them really established people who have big accounts, they're definitely making more money than like a salaried journalist at a newspaper. And they have all this freedom. But the flip side is they don't have any kind of journalistic training, like really whatsoever. Some of them are a little better than others, but a lot of them would never even try to say that they're a journalist, but they have the platform that a lot of journalists would envy. Let's talk about then what makes you different you're a journalist, you consider yourself a journalist, you approach these cases as a journalist. I mean, you're basically setting the criteria for what type of content you would put online, what type of cases you would cover. You know, how do you differentiate yourself? Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of juggling with that right now as, you know, I want to embrace the Megan the reporter, the celebrity legal affairs reporter. And I feel like the kind of detail-oriented litigation reporting that I did at the Daily Journal could easily be applied to celebrity news because there is a lot of celebrity cases around around there that when you actually look into it, especially in federal court, because it's kind of a universal language and we've got Pacer, everything's online. There are a lot of celebrity cases and litigation going on that isn't getting covered very well because just reporters don't cover litigation. So if you can find the litigation and the celebrity aspect, I feel like I have a really good niche there. But one of my big issues is also just the way I was brought up at the LA Daily Journal and kind of my core readership covering the Michael Avenatti trial and covering trials in LA is that the fact is most of my paid subscribers or a lot of my paid subscribers on Substack are LA lawyers who are interested in LA federal courts and like my coverage because I know about the judges and I write about what's actually going on. Like the DOJ, the U.S. Attorney's Office feels like they can read my stories and find out, you know, what's really going on inside the courthouse. So I don't want to just completely abandon those cases, even though they're not celebrity oriented. I, I want to find some kind of balance between the big, important federal cases in L.A. that do not get covered like the way the federal cases 
in Manhattan do and find a way to balance that. Because part of it is I feel like part of my credibility as a celebrity courts reporter is that I have background covering non-celebrity courts. That's where I, I learned how to cover courts. And I frankly just feel like I've always been kind of of the subset that celebrity news gets way too much coverage. And, you know, who cares about these people when, you know, they want to find out about Kenneth Petty, who's Nicki Minaj's husband, you know, being charged with not registering as a sex offender when there was just the boat captain of the conception boat, the dive boat where 34 people died in 2018. He went on trial in federal court for manslaughter and the case barely got any coverage. And I felt, you know, kind of an obligation to cover it. I was in court for a lot of those days and I did a couple of stories and I feel like I'm in a position now where the relationships I have with some of the TV stations where I go on and do commentary, I could say, hey, there's a really important trial happening with the conception boat captain and they would give me a spot to go on and talk about it. But they're so celebrity oriented. I mean, everything is celebrities when I feel like I have a duty and and an obligation as a journalist to shed light on all these other important cases that frankly are a lot more interesting to cover. Because like I was saying, the difference between these you know, sexual assault trials in LA Superior Court versus the trials that I'm used to covering, that's why I want to keep going into federal court and covering the big cases that the DOJ is doing in LA, because they're frankly just a lot more interesting to watch. The attorneys are really good. The issues are a little bit more complex. I just feel like I get more out of it, like intellectually when I watch these trials. You got to eat your vegetables sometimes. Yeah. And the other thing is the people who come to your website to find out about your coverage of Tory Lane's Many of them probably, unless they have a personal experience with a courtroom, I mean, that may be their only opportunity to see something in a courtroom, in a way. So the fact that you're thinking about, you know, there are these other types of cases that need to be covered because they're important and they say a lot and they're more challenging, they're more interesting. You know, maybe that's an opportunity to the people who come to your site to, for the celebrity to understand different types of cases. And uh, hopefully that would be something that would be good. Yeah, yeah. And that's one thing that I've always heard is people have kind of lamented that celebrity cases are the only cases that people really pay attention to and they're how people learn about the court system. So if I can recognize that and try to bring some of my knowledge from other cases in and kind of use it as just a, like a, a civics education tool for people about the court system, that'd be great. That'd be great. And one thing I was kind of worried about in the beginning was, like I said, most of my kind of loyal subscribers through the years are lawyers in LA who practice in federal court and like reading my coverage. And I've been a little like, you know, I wonder how they feel about getting, you know, all these updates about Tory Lanes. And some of them, you know, they're not particularly interested in the legal ins and outs of the case, but they like it. They think it's interesting to read about celebrities and how attorneys are handling celebrity cases and kind of the difference in litigating a celebrity case versus a, a non-celebrity case. So I've been encouraged to embrace both, embrace the traditional L.A. federal courts reporting, but also really embrace the Megan the Reporter celebrity courts reporter. What makes you excited? What gives you satisfaction when you're covering a story like this? I guess what I get the most satisfaction out of is when people say that I made a complex issue understandable for them. It happened with Michael Avenatti's trial when there was actually a mistrial declared related to some 
financial data about his law firm that prosecutors had released last minute. And I remember when the mistrial happened, somebody commented that I had made what would have been an incomprehensible outcome understandable through my previous reporting, just talking about the financial issues that were being raised in the trial. So I took a lot of pride in that. And I try to bring that to all the cases I cover. Like, how can I make this digestible for people? Not you know, the lawyer who has a partnership at a big law firm, but, you know, just the person in, you know, a small town in the Midwest who's never been to LA before and is interested in the whole idea of celebrities on trial. You know, can I make things more accessible and more interesting and understandable to them? Was that the case that you wrote about the concern for prejudicing the the jury because of the video that they were going, or the video or the audio they're going to show of some victims dying? There was a video of the people's final moments that the defense didn't object to that being played, but they did have questions over the timing of when that would be played. So I did do an article that's on my website that like really lays that all out because what I thought was most most interesting, most newsworthy about it was just the difference in the courts, how unprepared the judge was for that. Whereas, you know, some judges in that same courthouse who have covered trials before would have had that all worked out ahead of time. So I feel like my experience with courts gives me the ability to recognize that stuff and to point that out and to also recognize the fact that that's a hugely stressful issue for the families. And I remarked to a couple of people that the judge who did the conception trial was Judge Wu. And I said, if this was Judge Walter, it would have been a much better trial for the families because the judge would have been much better prepared and there wouldn't have been all these kind of last minute decisions like that. So I feel like that's the kind of important reporting on the court system, especially the LA or especially the federal court system where the judges have lifetime appointments and are making really serious decisions because I feel like they all have their own little fiefdoms and they feel like it's disrespectful to even attempt to question what they're doing. So if you can have the kind of background and experience covering a courthouse where you can go into a trial and point out things like that, like the fact that the judge was back in his chambers listening to that final moments call and finalizing an argument over what the transcript said while the victim's families were out in the gallery waiting for the video to be played. I mean, a lot of judges would not have done that. And just the ability to recognize and point that out, I think is so crucial. And it goes down to like what the heart of journalism is. I watched some of your videos in the past and, you know, it was a really great opportunity to talk to you. And I really admire what you're doing. I think you're very forward thinking. Courts reporting is so meat and potatoes as far as journalism goes, but with the way media is evolving and where we are at today and where we were 10 years ago, I mean, it's good to see somebody who's sort of recognizing these trends and jumping on them and then using them to sort of give themselves some wings so that that they can maybe move forward on their own. So yeah. anyway, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it was a good discussion. Thanks so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. Hi, Michael O'Connell again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Megan. And thanks for sticking around for this special announcement regarding our 600th episode. To celebrate that milestone, the IAJ crew wanted to reward our most loyal listeners by giving away a limited number of our It's All Journalism mugs. On February 1st, we'll randomly draw names from our newsletter subscription list and mail the winners their very own mug. If you're already a subscriber to our weekly email newsletter, you don't need to do anything. But if you're not a subscriber, go to itsalljournalism.com to sign up for our newsletter and make yourself eligible for our February 1st drawing. Again, thank you very much for supporting our podcast. Go to itsalljournalism.com, sign up for our weekly email newsletter, and who knows, maybe you'll be drinking your morning coffee or tea or beverage of your choice using one of our It's All Journalism mugs.